like to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel in the 21st chapter. I'm going to read <clears throat> those few verses from 7 to 9 that we've been looking at. 2 Samuel 21, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Jehovah's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bare to Adrael, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before Jehovah, and they fell all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days at the beginning of barley harvest. <clears throat> we just had an election. Probably none of you noticed. What did David do here that we just read? What was it that he did in these few verses? Of course, we've been looking at this. And what he did was uh, respond to the direction of the Gibeonites. He asked them what they would have him to do to make things right. The chapter begins with that famine in the land for three years. And David turned his face unto Jehovah and cried unto him to discover that God... Perhaps we should say God the Holy Spirit discovered it unto him. That the problem was Saul. It was because of Saul that this famine that he had brought, God had brought this famine upon the land to get attention. And he got David's attention and probably a number of others. But David is the one we're told that turned his face unto Jehovah. And he contacted the Gibeonites because God had told him it's because of the blood that Saul shed, breaking a covenant that had been made by Joshua years before, by Joshua and the tribal leaders that they had made unto the Gibeonites, who had deceived them nonetheless. They had sworn an oath. They had sworn it in the name of Jehovah their God, that they would not kill them. And so there was this oath, even as this oath that we just read of between David and Jonathan. There was this oath between Israel and the Gibeonites. And so they took them rather than killing them. That's how important the name of God is and that's how important oaths are. They took the Gibeonites and set them up in their own city and made them to be hewers of wood and carriers of water, servants. And so thus they continued, servants to Israel, servants some suggest to the temple bringing in all the water that was needed and all the wood that was needed for the continuing fires in the temple. So here, after the Gibeonites have answered, responded to David's request, what would you have me to do? They let him know what they would have him to do. And they said, the man that consumed us, Saul, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the borders of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Jehovah. 
And then we, we read the response. David responds. He gives them. He said, I will give them. We don't know why it's seven. We're not told. And some have suggested one thing and some another. Some think the number is special. Some even suggested that perhaps seven was all the sons that were left. And that's a possibility, but we're not told. But nonetheless, they requested that he deliver unto them seven of the sons, some were grandsons, of Saul, the one who had perpetrated this terrible slaughter upon them. In his zeal for Israel, we're told. Saul's zeal for Israel. And we suggested last week that it was probably a selfish interest, in fact, for which Saul perpetrated this terrible thing and had no problem, no problem whatever, breaking the covenant that had been made in the name of Jehovah. So we're told, <clears throat> and we look at it again this morning, we're told that the king spared Mephibosheth, but he gave unto them two sons of Rizpah and five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. That's a little bit problematic that Michal is spoken of here because we're told earlier in the records of Samuel that because of the way she behaved toward David, worshiping God and dancing before the ark in his joy, the joy of the Lord, as he dances before the ark, that she looked at him out of the window and in her, in her heart she despised him. David rebuked her. But the Lord saw to it that she had no children all the days of her life. So we have to balance that against this that we read. And in the margin of your Bibles, uh, it may say, as it does in mine, Mirab. That was Michal's older sister, the one that was initially promised to David. But Michal was his wife at one time, and she was regained as his wife after he became king over Israel after the death of Saul. But I think probably one suggestion of one commentator is that, that McCall raised, that Mirab had passed away and that McCall raised these sons for or unto Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Maholothite. But in either event, I suppose in my prejudice that I prefer to see that be the cause rather than to allow for a, a scribal error of some sort. But we know that there are scribal errors on some occasions. We see, for example, looking ahead at verse 19 of this chapter, we see, and there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jarrah Origem, the Bethlehemite, slew Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. He slew Goliath the Gittite. Didn't David already slay him? But we're told elsewhere about that, in fact. We're told in Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles, chapter 20, I believe. It's, it's corrected that this was not. This was not Goliath, but it was the brother of Goliath. The Gittite. And oftentimes in the scriptures, especially in the Older Testament, we see grandson spoken of as sons and, and so on and it causes a little confusion but not to worry 
Nonetheless, <clears throat> David provided in response to the Gibeonites two sons, Arispa, whom she bare unto Saul, and five sons of Michal or Mirab, the daughter of Saul. He provided them. And in order to do that, what did he have to do? He had to choose who he was going to give over to them. Did he not? He had to choose. He had to make a choice. And as I intimated, we just a couple weeks ago, or yesterday, whenever, whenever it may be solved uh, or resolved, at any rate, we had an election. But what did we do? What do we do in elections? We choose the ones that we believe would be the best to represent us in Washington, D.C., or in the governor's office, and so on. But choice and election are synonymous, are they not? David here chose these seven to give to the Gibeonites, and he chose to spare Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. He chose. He made these choices. I believe we have here a picture. I'm not going to call it a type, but we have at least a picture or an illustration in this passage of election. Election unto life, Mephibosheth, an election unto death, those seven sons of Saul. Is election not the act of effecting a choice? Certainly it is. As we just indicated, we just made a choice at the election polls. Well, God has made choices. He has chosen some unto salvation. And some he has not so chosen. Now, a lot of people don't like that doctrine of election. But those of us who by the grace of God have been brought unto our Lord Jesus Christ through the choice of God the Father and the merit of God the Son and the application of God the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in it, do we not? God has made these choices. Paul, speaking of Jacob and Esau, in Romans 9, fairly well-known passage, makes, makes this point when he says, For the children being not yet born, being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Even as it is written, Paul's referencing Malachi 1-2, even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And further on, Paul says, what shall I say then? What shall we say? In Malachi we read this, and Paul repeats it in Romans 9. But what is the point? The point is that it's nothing that man can do himself. They weren't even born yet. They haven't done anything good or bad yet. It was according to the purpose of God that election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. You know that salvation is of works, but it's the works of our Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha. Nothing man can do can warrant or merit being saved. 
It is all of God. It is according to his election, according that, to elect, that his election might stand, that his purpose might be accomplished, and that we can see. Paul could see, looking back on that history. They saw at that time. Rachel saw it. Isaac saw it, I believe. And Paul understood it. And he wants us to understand it, even as he declares this to us. It's not of works. We know, of course, why David chose Mephibosheth unto life. Because we're told it was for the sake of his father, Jonathan. But we're not told anything. I don't believe that there's anything where these individuals are mentioned. And of course, there are only the two sons of Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, that are mentioned by name. We don't know anything of these seven. Whether they had done evil or done, of course, there's none good. None good except God. But we don't know. We don't know. This isn't necessarily speaking of their eternal future. But they have been handed over to be hanged in Gabeah of Saul, to be slain, they have been handed over, and David made the choice. We're not told any about the, anything about these seven, but they were condemned to death, effectively, by King David. Just as Paul speaks about Jacob and Esau before they were born, we're not given any knowledge about these individuals. But David chose them, and we can say they were elected by the king to be given over to the Gibeonites, to turn back God's wrath, to bring rain, to end the famine, to end the drought. We're not told that David knew anything about them at all. He had some understanding of the connection, the family connection, of course, but we're not even told that that's the reason. We're only told that that's the reason that he spared Mephibosheth. Because he was the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. And David had an oath binding him, an oath that he had made, he and Jonathan had made. But David was given the responsibility of gathering these seven that they requested. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, we could say, in parallel by illustration and so on. This parallel that we have, this picture of election, God has chosen some and not others according to his own will. Again, the words of Paul, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why didst thou make me thus? Shall any man, woman, Shall any human being, shall any person say to God, why did thou make me thus? No. The answer is a resounding no. And yet there are some that, of course, have said that. I remember a friend of mine in high school, and I wasn't even a believer, but I was defending some truth, I think, and, and he said, if I don't believe it's because God made me this way, it's his fault. That really, I think, echoes the sentiment of many people in this country. 
They want to blame someone else. That's man's nature, isn't it? That's the sinner's nature. Blame somebody else for everything and anything. Not my fault. That's man. That's sinful man. Paul reminded those, of course, in Ephesus of this reality when he began that epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Some translations offer the, the rendering before time began. Before time began, God chose us in him. He placed us in Christ before time began. Not just before we were born, before anything, before time began. Before God set the sun and the moon in the, in the heavens and said, and it was day and it was night. Before time even began, God's elect people were chosen and placed in Christ from before time, from before the foundation of the world. Is that not amazing? <laughs> it's, it's, it's so amazing that, that we can't really wrap our hearts around it, can we? We accept it through the precious gift of faith. These concepts are only such that God-given faith enables us to wrap our hearts around it, to embrace it, to embrace it, to understand it. No. We are happy, happy to embrace it. And Thankful that we have that faith that will enable us to embrace it, that will enable our hearts to embrace it. That God has placed us in his son before time even began. And that's the reason that we are called. That's the reason that we uh, uh, hear the gospel. That's the reason that in all of God's providential uh, determinations throughout the history of Everything, but particularly as we think of ourselves throughout our history. Why was it that we did this, like Spurgeon stepping into that chapel because of a heavy snowstorm? And God using a deacon, an old man that was perhaps just reading scripture. But he happened to look over Spurgeon and he said, young man, you look miserable. And Spurgeon was miserable because he hadn't come under the understanding that God had sent Christ to die for him. And that was the point of Spurgeon's conversion. Circumstances like that, that we don't have any idea of how God has chosen to put them together. Why did this happen in my life? I had circumstances that drove me from Florida back up to Michigan crazy right it drove me back up to Michigan and when I got back to where I was working when I had left for Florida guys not being all that friendly they they used to they used to like to enjoy even telling me boy 
if you hadn't left, you'd, you'd be top dog on seniority. You'd be the, the leader of the pipe fitters. You'd be this. I don't care. I didn't care. God used that to save my soul. What do I care about being leader of a group of men at an auto plant? God uses circumstances to bring his people to himself, but it's all because he chose us before the foundation of the world, before time even began, and placed us in Christ in order that when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was hanged upon that tree, that our names, as the hymn writer says, were written on his hands. Written on his hands. The names of all those so placed in Jesus Christ, their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And again, these are concepts that, that we can, we can um, wrap our arms around our Bibles and wrap our arms around the Word and thank God for the indwelling Holy Spirit He has given that we have any understanding at all, but we will never, never be able to fully comprehend these things. We will never be able to answer the questions that will almost eternally come to our minds, especially that question, why me? The names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we are able to apprehend what we will likely never be able to comprehend. I was reminded in my study of an account I heard an esteemed theologian. I don't remember who it was. I just remember that he was esteemed. I don't even remember if he was esteemed by me or not. But, but I remember that he was, he was at some kind of a conference and, and there was question and answer period and someone asked this esteemed theologian how he would sum up for them if he could sum up soteriology, if he could sum up the doctrines of salvation in a, in a brief statement, how he comprehended salvation. His response was, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Is that not a good theology? You may question it as a song, one way or the other, but is that not good theology? The Bible tells me so. It is not surprising that Jesus offered teaching related, related to these doctrines that are before us right now. And that which I'm referring to is found in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. A couple of verses from Matthew 25. It's setting forth, Matthew 25, as you well know, I'm sure, setting forth uh, uh, both the parable of the ten virgins as well as the parable of the talents. But after those, after Christ sets forth these two parables, then he begins to speak, as one writer suggested, as king and judge. He begins to speak to his disciples about the judgment. And he begins in 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory 
and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory. And he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. It's the king coming in judgment. He's going to divide the sheep and the goats. That's what David had to do in a sense. Dividing Mephibosheth from the, the other sons of Saul. The king separating the sheep and the goats. He says before his hearers the necessary separation that will take place between believers and non-believers under the types of goats and sheep, setting the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. He says to those on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world, again that phrase, from the foundation of the world. It was yours from the foundation of the world. Come and inherit it. It was your inheritance. Why? Because you're in Christ. Because of that reality, you have believed upon him and submitted to his lordship. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the beginning of time. That's verse 34. But 41 we read, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. I couldn't find where I'd read it years ago, but I remember that it was credited to Charles Spurgeon. Bringing out the point that is obvious to me now, but it wasn't 30 years ago. He doesn't say, he doesn't say to these men that this eternal fire was prepared for them. He says that the kingdom was prepared for them, his, the believers from the foundation of the world or the sheep. But he says about the eternal fire that it was prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a sense in which he's He's saying it wasn't really prepared for you. You're plummeting into that eternal fire because of your own wickedness and your own ungodly unbelief. But nonetheless, we're looking at this separation, the doctrine of election, the choice that was made, some placed in Christ and some not placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It's interesting, at least, that the kingdom for the righteous is spoken of as being prepared for the sheep from the foundation of the world. While the goats that are told to depart from him are told to depart into eternal fire. That's prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't think I would want to base a doctrine upon that, but it's interesting. It's interesting what is left out. It's interesting the difference between those two statements. This is supported, this separation is supported by other scriptures, of course. For example, in Revelation 13, 8, as we are told about the false prophet and the beast, it is added, and all that dwell on earth shall worship him. That is, worship the beast. Those are goats worshiping the beast 
everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that hath been slain. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb of God, they are those who will worship the beast. They are those who will worship false gods. And this revelation that we've just mentioned informs us further when I say this revelation. I mean the book of the revelation informs us in chapter 20 and verse 15 that if any was not found written in the book of life, if any was not found written in the book of life, if any was found not to have been placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world, he was cast into the lake of fire. And the truth is underlined again toward the end of this book in 2127. There shall in no wise enter into, that is, there shall in no wise enter into the holy city anything unclean or that maketh an abomination and a lie, but only they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Anything unclean. Were we unclean? Yes, we were. Are we clean now? We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb of God because our names are written in the book, the Lamb's book of life. And only because of that, not anything in ourselves. So how is one able? How is one able to attain unto the holy city? How does one join? the family of God. Well, John's gospel informs us in verse 644, chapter 6 and verse 44 tells us unequivocally our Lord himself speaking, Jesus Christ speaking, that no man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day, in the last day. No man can. Oh, there are so many professing Christians, and sadly, I'm sure real Christians that can't stand that, that can't handle that. No man can come to me. Except the Father that sent me draw him. And I will raise him. He will come. And that's the reason that I will raise him up in the last day. How, how may we manage that truth? As I've already suggested, many don't manage it. They can't manage it. We can't manage it apart from the grace of God, apart from the God-given faith that we have. We couldn't manage it. God must manage it for us, as he must do everything for us. If it is to be done right, he has told us again through Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in 31.3, in these beautiful words of grace, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That hesed, that covenant love, that loving kindness. And it, it does appear that we have Daniel before us the end of the book of Daniel. And we may read it in chapter 12 of that book 
the prophet writing, and at that time thy people shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. How are we to achieve those blessings? We must come to Christ. We must bow to him as Lord and Savior. We must come to Jesus. We must believe on him. We must believe the gospel again and again. The New Testament tells us, repent and believe. This is Jesus' preaching, Paul's preaching, the apostles' preaching. Repent and believe the gospel. Paul tells us in Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And yet he immediately inquires, does he not? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Sadly, there are multitudes. We know that. Especially in this Bible belt, there are multitudes that have free access to Bibles. Free access to the preaching of the gospel. And yet refuse the offer of salvation from Jesus Christ, from his people, from the word. They refuse that offer. The true people of God must be praying. We must be praying. These people need God the Holy Spirit in regenerating grace. These people need that grace if they're to believe the gospel that's all around them. They can't escape it, physically speaking, and yet they are running from it. The people of God must be praying for true revival. Revival that only God can send sending his Holy Spirit to revive hearts, and that he would begin at the house of God. Revive us, O Lord. We read in Psalm 80 over and again, turn us again, revive us, quicken us. We must be praying. God's hands are not tied. He is able to save. He is well able to save his people. He is well able to make them willing in the day of his power. He would have us to pray for a great revival. If it be his good will and pleasure to save one in this whole city of Greenville in response to our prayers, is that not sufficient to drive us to our knees to pray? Oh Lord God, glorify thyself. Saving sinners. Jehovah that we read of in Job 9 maketh the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, that doeth great things past finding out. Yea, marvelous things without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Job speaks of that. In Job chapter 9, 9 through 11, sounds, does it not sound? 
like the words of Christ himself in John 3.8 about God the Holy Spirit. Christ describing the work of God the Holy Spirit in regenerating grace. The wind bloweth where it will, and thou hearest the voice thereof, but knoweth not whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. As we were hearing in Sunday school, we need to pray unto God that the Holy Spirit himself would move upon us. Move upon this body of believers to pray for unbelievers. Move upon unbelievers to regenerate their hearts, to bring them to salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Job has something else recorded for us that's pertinent, I believe. And Job, speaking of God, saith he hath described in verse 10 of chapter 26, he hath described a boundary upon the face of the waters unto the confines of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirreth up the sea with his power and by his understanding he smiteth through Reb. By his spirit the heavens are garnished. His hand hath pierced the swift serpent Lo, these are but the outskirts or the fringes of his ways. These are just the fringes of his ways. But how many need the fringes of his ways? How many need God the Holy Spirit to move upon them in regenerating grace? How many of us need God the Holy Spirit to continue indwelling, to move us to pray? For revival among these multitudes of unbelievers. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power. Who can understand? That's what we've been saying. The thunder of his power. Who can understand? Who can understand his electing grace? Who can understand his regenerating grace? Nicodemus didn't. We don't really. But we can pray for it. And we can cry unto God to give us greater understanding that we might indeed know more of the outskirts of his ways, more and more of the fringes of his garments. Let us pray. O Lord our God, thou knowest, Father, the helplessness that we feel. And yet we are not helpless. Remind us of that again and again, for thou hast given to us the privilege, the responsibility, the duty of praying. Oh, Lord our God, thou hast granted that we might have audience with thee, that we might turn ourselves as David did unto thy face. May we do so more often. May we do so more fervently, even as Elijah gives us example, that it might rain, that it might rain showers of blessing upon many. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just stand, please, for the benediction. It's taken from Ephesians and the third chapter. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we seek or think, according to the power that worketh in us, 
Unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen.